Most gracious Father, thy word is truth, and we thank you for it, Lord. For in it we know you, and we know all that Christ has done for us on our behalf. Now as we come to the reading and preaching of your word, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey your voice. In Christ's name, amen. Romans 9, or 9, 19 through 33. Hear now the words of the one and only living and true God. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. In her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, They shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offsprings, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is God's word. may be seated. I think one thing when we come and study scripture, uh, an issue that we run into with our uh, English translation of the Bibles is uh, the chapter and verse divisions. Uh, I think we are so accustomed as people to see chapter one is just chapter one stuff, chapter two is just chapter two stuff, and we don't really see them all working together. Uh, The chapter divisions that we actually have in our scriptures 
uh, were put together around 1227 AD. So before then, there were no chapters, there were no verses. Uh, Paul wasn't writing Romans and put chapter 2, now I'm going to focus on this. Chapter 8, now I'm going to focus on this. And so why is that important? Why am I bringing that up? Because again, when we look at Romans chapter 9, what a lot of people have the tendency to do is take 9 away from chapter 8, as if they're two completely separate portions of Scripture. But again, it's weaving itself right into the next thought. Everything we've learned in chapters 1 through 8 flows into chapter 9. It's a continual thought process that Paul has. He doesn't take a break, wait a few months, and then decide, I'm going to now write some more theological stuff. It's all one continuous flowing thought. It comes out of God's golden chain of redemption. God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. Paul explains how these have unfolded over redemptive history. And borrowing from another uh, theologian and apologist, uh, what should alarm us in Romans 9 as we read it regarding Esau I hated and Jacob I love, regarding it depends not on human will, regarding for this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you, that he hardens whomever he will, those phrases in Scripture should not alarm us. If we've read Romans 1-8, through 8, those shouldn't pop up and say, I can't believe these are true. No, what should pull us back, what should drop us to our knees is Jacob I have loved. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Knowing the state of man and hearing those words alone that God would pour out his love for you, a sinner, is more amazing than anything else we read in this passage. If God were to only exercise his justice and not his mercy, no one would ever be saved. It's hardly unjust if God, according to his sovereign grace, chose to set apart some for glory and pass over others. Why is this? Because our perspective, man's perspective, is twisted and distorted apart from the newness of mind that's given by the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to go with that and look at first man's presumption in Romans 9, 19 through 20. Again, Paul writes, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Even still, as we've looked at over the past couple of weeks, Paul is once again anticipating more objections to the claims that he has already established. 
Paul even says, you will say to me, I know that you are going to refute what I told you, so I'm going to prepare you before you even come to me and ask and say of this. What's the issue? It's resisting God's will. And Paul asks, why does he find fault? Who can resist God's will? The emphasis is upon God's will. If we were to translate this directly from the Greek, it would say, for his will, for God's will, dot, dot, dot. Who could resist? The focus is upon man's objection against God who created them. It is as if this rebuke is like saying, it's God's will, therefore it isn't my fault. I'm doing these things. It is God's will for me to sin. It is God who is at fault. Who can resist his will? We know that not to be true. It speaks volumes truly to man's condition. Is this not also what we see in the Garden of Eden? We see blame shifting in the Garden. We see man not taking accountability for what he's done. Genesis 3, 11 through 13. He that is God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the, free, of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, now he didn't say, Yes, I was at fault. It's my fault. No, he says, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's not the state of man to uh, turn away and blame shift other people, to blame others, to blame God for our own misdoings. I will blame God for the way things are. I won't take accountability for my own sin, they're saying. It's important to note as well uh, that it is not the doctrine of the Bible that God makes men wicked and then punishes them for their own wickedness. Rather, what Scripture states, what it firmly asserts, what we see is that God permits men of their own free will, according to their own nature, to act and to sin. And then because they are responsible for their own nature, for how they act, God punishes them accordingly. This is the precise language of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 1. God did from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, rather established. What does all that theological mumbo-jumbo mean? God is not imputing upon man's right to act as he sees fit. Man by nature is a child of wrath. You are born in Adam, Romans 5, 
You do nothing good. All have fallen and sh- fallen short of the glory of God. You are acting in accordance with your own nature. God is not forcing you to act sinfully. He doesn't need to force you. You do it of your own accord. And Paul's rebuke is strong. He says, Who are you, O man? O created thing, O creature, O thing made of dust, who are you to answer back to God? Again, we don't see this in our translations, but in the Greek, the very first thing in the uh, sentence is you. It's not on God, it's not our who are you, it's you. You, O man. Who are you to answer back to God? Now, this term that's used to answer back to God, it only occurs one other time in the New Testament. And it's found in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Uh, During this time, Jesus is being watched uh, by the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. Uh, He asked the Pharisees if it's lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath day. And they remain silent on the matter. And Jesus says, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And what's their response? What do the Pharisees do in response? Luke says, They could not reply. They cannot answer back to these things. Like man, in Romans 9, the Pharisees had nothing to answer back to the Son of God. They had nothing to reply to his statement. So Paul is saying, who are you, O creature, that you think you have the right to answer back to God? Yet man still tries to answer back, doesn't he? Again, the language is a bit lost, but initially this question asked is literally, why me? Again, why me? Why have you made me like this, God? Why me? Is is this not the stereotypical complaint of man? Why me? Why me? Why me? So man laments, man complains that he cannot resist the will of God, therefore it can't be their fault. Similarly, Paul combines a few passages from the prophet Isaiah, which we will uh, go in depth here soon. But chapter 29, 16, and 45, 9 Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed of him who formed it. He has no understanding that is God. The Lord's words to the people of Israel through the prophet signify this point of contention that the nation has as they are going into exile, as they are being kicked out of the land. Once again, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will 
have compassion on whom I have compassion. Or as we looked at last week, I will mercy whom I mercy. I will compassion whom I compassion. Even Job himself, a man who knew suffering more than many of us know suffering, recognized the impossibility of questioning the creator. Job 9, 12, Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him that is God, what are you doing? Or also Job 42, 1 through 6, as he uh, receives this reply from God, this rebuke from God. He says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and I will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job cannot believe that he at any point would be able to answer back to God and give him counsel and wisdom. Brothers and sisters, it's the equivalent of us standing before a judge in the court system, having broken several laws, having murdered and stolen, and then saying to the judge as our witness to ourselves that we're guilty, it's your fault, judge, for making the laws. It's not my fault. The law was there and I broke the law, so it's your fault. That would never hold up in a court of law, you blaming the judge for your wrongdoings. Would it hold up in the court of God to blame him for the sins you have committed? Borrowing Paul's language by no means. Man's presumption. Secondly, the potter's prerogative. Romans 9, 21 through 22, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? If we were to just take this verse and take out the questions, remove the interrogatives, we would actually have foundational truths of what Paul is bringing to us. Instead of asking, we say the potter has right over the clay. God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. And God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Yet Paul, again, uses this tactic, this question format, uh, this rhetoric to elicit responses from us. And there's this assertion made that the potter has right over the clay. Again, Paul is not coming up with a new concept this isn't the New Testament here and the Old Testament over here, completely separated from one another. Paul uses the Old Testament to make this very point. 
Isaiah 29:16. You turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Were the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Even the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 12, echoes the exact same potter and clay analogy. Israel is lamenting. Why are we in exile? What could we have possibly done? God says, what right do you have to answer back to me? God himself has the rights and we have the wrongs. God can do as he sees fit with the clay. The lump of clay here is not just a reference to humanity in general. Just as the lump of clay is already existing in the presence of the potter, so also humanity, uh, being created by God in his own image, is not standing before God as a lump of clay. The lump of clay is dealing with fallen humanity. We are dealing here with God as a moral governor, not just as a creator. So what, on what grounds or what basis is Paul making this argument? Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to whom? All men, because all have sinned. All mankind, because all of mankind has sinned. We have all sinned in Adam, and the sin of Adam is in us in its entirety. We are all born in sin and deserve God's condemnation. There's no escaping it. But we also deserve it because it is our own deliberate choice. When you sin, no one is holding you at gunpoint saying, you better sin right now in this moment. Again, is this not what Paul has already brought up in Romans 7? Yes. Verses 15 through 20. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And this is immensely practical if we actually take the time to think about it. What is the natural disposition of clay? Is clay active? 
Is it, is it doing something? It's sitting there waiting to be formed and shaped and molded. Does clay transform itself into a useless or useful purpose? Does it, you put it on the table, you, you wait for it to create it into something? No. When you go home, take clay or Play-Doh, I want you to put it on the table and call me when it does something, when it creates some magnificent masterpiece all by itself without being formed or fashioned or made. Spoiler alert, it'll be a waste of your time. It won't do anything in and of itself. The clay, the Play-Doh, will act according to its own nature. It will remain immovable. It'll stay, and it'll slowly begin to harden itself. And over the course of days and years, it will get even hardened and more hardened and more hardened until it crumbles into nothing. Is this not exactly the point that Paul is making? That the potter is the one who can decide to take the clay and to form it and to shape it actively into something of use, something of honorable use for the potter's own glory and to let the other lump of clay remain on the desk to continue to get hardened. The sinner in and of himself does not want to be shaped and molded into the likeness of Christ Jesus. The sinner wants to remain a lump of clay, a useless vessel, until they are hardened into a brittle lump. But the other clay that's chosen by the potter, the potter works and molds and fashions with his own hands something magnificent. The potter works and fashions the piece of clay into the very image of his own son. One is made for honorable use, the other for dishonorable. One is shaped and molded to sit amidst the king's great hall for a great use. The other is shaped and molded to be used for dishonorable purposes. It's passed over. It's not given love, mercy, and compassion. This echoes back to what Paul talked about Jacob and Esau in verses 11 through 13. Though they were not yet born, they have not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. One was predestined for honorable use, who is by nature a dishonorable lump of clay. The other was shaped into dishonorable use according to its own nature. This passage again focuses on our own salvation. God pulling us up and creating in us something new, something wonderful, something glorious. Honor and dishonor in these terms are intertwined with one another in terms of salvation. With Pharaoh, he says, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might make my power shown in you and that my name might be proclaimed 
in all the earth. But in shaping God's beloved, as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 19-21, he does this, God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Not only is God merciful, but his patience is shown and demonstrated as well. We're told in Romans 2, 4, many chapters previous, Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's patience and his forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance, just as God was patient with us and compassionate towards us. The vessels prepared for destruction are prepared in the very sense that by their life and by their own conduct, they have decided their destiny. We're not robots. We're not automatons. God's not pressing the buttons, forcing his way to us. Rather, they're acting according to their own nature. You serve sin because you are by nature a child of wrath, a sinner. You serve Christ because by his spirit, he has enlivened you and woken you to know what are his good pleasures. But how does this actually provide us comfort and aid amidst such tragedies, such uh, issues and tribulations that we deal with? The reality of the present time is that we are suffering. Many I know are suffering. Many of you I don't know you're suffering. Many of you don't know mine's suffering. But nonetheless, we are all suffering together. And the reality of the present time is that God is enduring with much patience those who are the objects or the subjects of our own suffering. But what does Paul tell us? What did he just tell us previously before we came onto? this present topic, that there is absolutely nothing that can, that has the ability, that is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This itself provides us with comfort beyond measure. That sword, tribulation, persecution, death, none of that will be able to separate us from God's love. But also comfort that although we are suffering and being persecuted, that God will judge the wicked. Psalm 37, 1 through 2. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Psalm 37, 10 through 11. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more, though you look carefully at his place. He will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant 
peace. Psalm 73, 18-20. Truly, Lord, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantom men. Man himself presumes that he has all the right to salvation. But the potter's prerogative is to do all things according to the counsel of his own will. And so finally we come to the potter's purpose. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which we, he has prepared beforehand for glory. There's a purpose behind what God does. And what is it? His own glory. He reveals and makes known his glory by setting apart for himself a particular people whom he will save and conform to the image of his own son, Christ Jesus. And how does he make this known to us? He makes it known in our own sufferings. Again, Romans 8, Paul reminds us What shall we say of these things? If God is for us, then who could possibly be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, will he not also graciously give us all things? God is the one who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So what does Paul ask? What would separate us from this love of Christ? Nothing, nothing will separate us. Why? Because he has prepared us beforehand for glory. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This isn't only a passage on theology, but it's a practical passage as well. You are the special object of God's love if you are in Christ. A love that you did not deserve, nor did you own or earn, but that Christ himself gave to you. That God set apart before you were conceived, before you could have done anything, good or bad. God himself set you apart. A vessel of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. In Adam, you were set apart, but in Christ, you are united back to God. Those who are saved are only saved by the mercy of God. Those who are lost are lost because of their own refusal to repent. This isn't the first time Paul uses prepared beforehand. It's used one other time in the New Testament. Many call this epistle, the shortened book of Romans, the the introduction to Romans. Uh, Like Romans, it follows God's foreordained plan, God's glory 
It follows man's inability. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a work. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And here it is, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which what God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are the workmanship of the creator. To obtain the image of Christ, he has molded and fashioned you, this dead lump of useless clay he has prepared into a most glorious vessel resembling Christ Jesus who came in the flesh, who is reigning and ruling, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the truth at the end of the day is that yes, God chooses some for salvation and God passes over others. Yet it should make us as Christians more thankful for the love that he has chosen to give us. That we were not any more worthy of salvation than those who are still lost who remain in their sins. And this is difficult, brothers and sisters. This is challenging, and it should challenge you. Even Peter himself, inspired scripture, says with regard to Paul that there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. But at the end of the day, we can only believe what the scriptures clearly teach, accepting it in our hearts, and even accepting those things we can't explain with our own minds. And we do this more than you realize. We can't fully rationalize the divine mind. We can't fully rationalize the incarnation, uh, the Trinity, creating something out of nothing. Yet we receive it by faith. And so also when we come to God's election, we receive it by faith. You are to walk by faith, knowing that God is doing all things for good. And so that when we are redeemed completely, when we are with our creator once more, we can sing like the saints of Revelation 15, 3 through 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let us go to him in prayer this morning. Lord, we are eternally grateful for all that you have done on our behalf. Lord, give us humble hearts when we come to difficult passages in Scripture. Let us not see them as a contradiction, but as a paradox of two truths 
that we don't quite understand. And Father, let us be settled and comforted when we are unsure of of your exact teachings. Lord, let us come with humble minds, fully reliant upon your spirit when we come to your word. But Father, we are eternally, again, grateful for what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. That we were nothing but a hardened lump of clay, but you gave us newness of life. You have formed and fashioned us, and throughout our lives you continue to shape and mold us into the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came willfully, willingly, uh, who took upon himself the curse that we deserve, the wrath that we deserve, and who died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Let us, Lord, all the days of our life rest upon that truth to never grow too old of the gospel, but to always love you, to glorify you, and to recognize who you are, a God who is holy, holy, holy. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.